Amen. If you'll join me in turning to Galatians chapter 3, that'll be our text this Lord's Day as we pick up in verse 15. Uh, If you've not been with us recently, we've been walking through the book of Galatians where we find the Apostle Paul writing to correct false teaching. Uh, He's writing to the Galatians who had responded to the genuine gospel, but over time, some false teachers, the Judaizers, had come in and began to teach them that in order to truly be saved, they had to add works to their faith. They had to adhere to the old covenant regulations. They had to do things in order to be fully members of God's household. And so Paul has been working systematically through an argument in this letter to help the Galatian believers understand that they are saved by faith in Christ and in Christ alone and and that faith has always been the way people are saved. We have that question come up even among us today. Well, how were people in the Old Testament saved? Well, Paul here has made a clear argument that uh, from Abraham on, we see people have always been saved by faith in the promises of God. And so he's going to pick back up on speaking of Abraham and what it means to be saved by faith in verse 15. So today we're going to look at verses 15 through 18 in Galatians 3. And if you're able to, if you would stand out of reverence for God's word, as I read this text for us this Lord's Day. This is what the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. This is what God says to us. This is His Word. And this is what it says. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. You would pray with me. Father, we thank you this morning that you are a God who keeps his promises. Every person in this room has experienced another person breaking a promise. We struggle to keep our own word. But Lord, you don't struggle. You are a God who is truthful. You are a God who is faithful. You are a God who always keeps His promise. And so, Father, I pray that we might better understand what that promise is today that You have kept. And I pray, God, that our faith today would rest fully in Jesus Christ, in His finished work on the cross, and not in the work of our hands for salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you may know the name Leona Hemsley. She was a billionaire real estate tycoon who lived in New York. She passed away in 2007. And and what was most known about her at the time wasn't so much her life or her fortune. It's what she chose to do with it. She made headlines in 2007 and 2008 after her death because of her will. You see, out of this $4 billion estate and fortune, she left virtually nothing to her family. 
Uh, she was survived by four grandchildren. Two of them she entirely cut out of the will. They received nothing. The other two received, compared to the vastness of her fortune, uh, very minimal amounts of money. And it was conditional. Uh, it was in her will that they had to visit the grave of a relative and sign in on an annual basis to continue to receive their inheritance from her. Most of the $4 billion was left not to care for the poor, not to take care of the needy, but specifically was put in a trust fund to take care of dogs. In fact, one of the greatest individual recipients in her will was $12, billion, or excuse me, $12 million that she left to her own pet dog. Now you can imagine when her relatives heard the reading of her will, they weren't very happy with this. In fact, they contested it, and they were successful. They did receive money for the heirs who had been left out of the will. They did reduce the dog's inheritance from $12 million to $2 million. So I assume the dog made it on the $2 million. Uh, but this will was contested because the family felt that this wasn't right. Now, we live in a culture now where you might not hear of so many absurd wills like this, but people can contest wills at times, and sometimes they are successful. We call it a last will and testament, but last wills aren't necessarily lasting wills because even after you die, you can be taken to court. That will can be contested. That is the culture and the context that we live in today. And that is radically different than the culture that the Apostle Paul is writing to in the book of Galatians. Paul is bringing up this language of a last will and testament in verses 15 through 18. In verses 15, he talks about this man-made covenant. And then in verse 18, he helps us to understand what type of covenant he's referring to when he speaks of an inheritance. Now, in the context, in the culture that Paul was in, you had all types of different laws at play. Now, you had the Roman law, you had the Greek law, and you had the Jewish law. And all of these dealt in different ways with wills, with uh, last wills that people would leave behind. For example, uh, in the Roman law, it was fairly easy to change your will. Uh, they could just virtually rip up a document and write a new one, but when they died, nothing could be changed. Now, the Greek law was very different. Once a will was written, it could never be changed in a person's lifetime, and certainly not after they died. And the Jewish law was similar to that. The three laws were different, but what they all shared in common is that once a person died, the will was ratified. Once a person died, nothing could be changed in that will. You could not contest a will in Paul's day. And this is important to understand. Because Paul is picking up on this language in verses 15 through 18 to use the example of a man-made will, a man-made covenant to show how if man's covenant, man's will, his last will cannot be changed, then how much higher standard should we see in God's covenant, in God's will, in what it is God decrees to man? Paul is essentially saying this, man-made covenants can't be changed once they're ratified, and certainly God's covenants cannot be changed. And this was significant, but as again, he was talking in a context to people who were struggling to understand the covenant promise of God. They were struggling to understand how it was that they would receive this covenant promise, what role their works played in, and what role their faith played in and so Paul draws on this language of a last will and testament this language of inheritance 
to better help them understand and prayerfully to help us understand today what it truly means to place our faith fully in Christ and what promise we receive as a result of that. And so we're going to walk through this passage and as we look to this language, hopefully we'll understand a few things that Paul's reiterating here, beginning there with, first, with point one in your outline. This reminder that God's covenant promise is fulfilled in Christ. God's covenant promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Notice again verse 15. Paul gives this human example of a last will and testament. He gives this example of something that cannot be annulled, meaning it can't be done away with. It can't be added to, so it can't be changed. And in doing this, he's pointing towards the importance of the covenant that God has made with man. He's saying man has a pretty strict standard on his covenant. God has an even higher standard for his. Paul is saying that God keeps his covenant promise. So what is that promise? Well, look at verse 16. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now this promise goes back to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis 12 we see God calling Abraham and God making a covenant promise to Abraham and to his offspring. In fact, we read this in Genesis 12, 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now Genesis 12, 7 was a verse that the Jewish people knew very well. It was a verse they held on to. Because what this verse said, or what they thought it said, was, well, we, we are the offspring of Abraham. We're the Jewish people. So we receive the promises of God because we're the Jewish people. We're, we're the offspring of Abraham. This is ours. And they, they adamantly held on to this. And so it wasn't so much their faith that was significant. It wasn't so much even their obedience that was significant. It was who they were related to. That's why you see, for example, when Jesus is preaching the genuine gospel to the people, often it's the Jewish leaders who are kind of pushing back on him and essentially saying to him, listen, Jesus, don't you know who we are? Don't you know who we're related to? In fact, we see there in John's gospel, John chapter 8, that when Jesus is confronting the Jews with the truth of the gospel, the Jewish leaders then defended themselves by saying, we're the offspring of Abraham. Abraham is our father. In fact, in John chapter 8, we also see there, they begin to point the finger at Jesus and say, now Jesus, tell us again, who, who's your father? <laughs> what were the conditions of your birth? They try to point to it as, as if it was scandalous. And they hold firmly to this righteousness they felt based on their family tree. And so this was the thought process that the Jewish people had. This is what the Judaizers were holding firm to. That's why when they came to Galatia, they were saying to these believers, listen, you're not children of Abraham, so if you want to have any hope of being a true follower of God, you better adhere to these laws and regulations that the children of Abraham and Moses and so on and so forth have always been called to. Notice what Paul says there to them in Galatians 3. Now the promises, verse 16, were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ? This would tear apart the belief system of somebody in his day. 
So many who were holding fast to Genesis 12 as this promise, as this due notice for them. We have this inheritance because we are the Jewish people. And Paul says, no, the inheritance that God gives to the children of Abraham comes directly through those who will place their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the promise offspring Jesus is the one true beneficiary of all of God's promises. Every promise that God makes to his people in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. How foolish then for the people of Paul's day. And how foolish then is it for us today to think that our works and our deeds have anything to do With our inheritance. You can leave a will in our culture today that says in order to get this you need to do this. But that is not what God has done with us friend. He has given us a promise. And that promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that means that every blessing from God is fulfilled in Jesus. And we receive these things not based on our works or our merit. We receive them based fully in our trust and our faith in our Lord Jesus. He is the one true beneficiary of all of God's promises. That's why 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. And this is so significant. Again, that question often comes up. Well, how were people in the Old Testament saved? And we see very clearly here in Galatians, Paul saying, they're saved the same way we're saved. They place their faith in the promises of God. In fact, remember what Paul wrote there in Galatians 3.8. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So Abraham received from the Lord that this gospel to which he was looking forward to the day the Messiah would come. He was trusting in the promises of God. He was looking forward to the cross. And now Paul's saying to those that were there, now you're looking back on the cross. We're both looking to the cross. We're both saved by faith in the promises of God. They were not saved by their works. And you are not saved by yours. Because all the promises of God are fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ. And therefore, friend, we should put our full hope and trust in Jesus. My fear for many of us is that we, we don't do this. Rather, we treat Jesus as if he's some type of insurance policy. Now... Everybody needs insurance. Insurance is a good thing. I do premarital counseling. I I wear couples out about their need for life insurance. I have insurance on my home, insurance on my cars. You, You should have insurance. Insurance is there when you need it, when you have it. You don't go out and get it in the midst of a crisis. You have it in case the crisis comes. Insurance is a good thing. But listen, Jesus is not to be our insurance. And yet so many of us view him that way. So we've got Jesus over here in case we need him. So I'm fine doing life on my own, but when the bottom falls out, oh, well, I've got Jesus over here. I can go over to Jesus because I've got problems now. Jesus can fix my problems. Jesus is my insurance. Things are going well. We're not thinking about Jesus so much. But then again, something else happens. 
What are we going to do? How are we going to make? Oh, there, we got, remember we got that Jesus policy over there. <laughs> of course, that's the, you know, the, the eternal insurance, isn't it? I'm secure because I've, I've got my, my Jesus policy over here. But what's the problem with that? Well, the problem, friends, is that you don't just need Jesus when the bottom falls out. You need Jesus all the time. Listen, we had storms come through here last night. I don't know how you respond when there's storms and stuff, but I sleep pretty well when there's storms. I sleep pretty well when there's not storms. And here's the reason I sleep well. Um, I, I have, like I said, insurance. But when there's a storm coming, I, I don't sit there and get fret, fretted and worried and anxious and then go, oh, wait, let me, let me review my insurance policy. Okay, I'm good. Because if the house gets torn down by a tornado and I get killed, well, at least they can rebuild it because I've got the insurance policy. Now, I sleep well at night in the midst of a storm because I live in a house that's been through a lot of storms. <laughs> My house is over 100 years old. And when I sleep in it, I often think, you know, it hadn't blown down yet. It's probably going to make it through this one. I have a, le- a-, a roof that doesn't leak. I have walls that are sturdy. I have a firm foundation so I can rest well at night. Friends, we can rest well because Jesus is our foundation. Jesus is our shelter. Jesus is the one who shelters us. He's not just there if we need Him. He's there all the time because all the time we do need Him. And the call from Scripture is for us to recognize we need to put our hope and our trust fully in Him. Friend, are you trusting in Him today? Not just going to Him when there's a crisis. Are you going to Him day after day? Do you realize that He holds your life in His hand? Are you trusting Him? He is the fulfillment of the promise of God. Number two, we're reminded from this text not to put our faith in works, but to put our faith fully in Jesus Christ. Verse 17, Paul says, This is what I mean. That the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Again, Paul here is calling on this language of a last will and testament. And he's calling on that language and saying, listen, that there's a promise that was made already and it was ratified. So that promise doesn't get changed because the law comes four centuries later. Now, if you do the math on this, you'll find that between the time God gave that promise to Abraham and the time he gave the law to Moses, there's actually about 645 years there. But then when you start to look more specifically at where God reiterates this promise, you find that in Genesis, excuse me, Genesis 28:15 that he reiterates this promise to Jacob, one of Abraham's descendants, his grandson. And from that point, moving forward to where Moses receives the law, there you have your 430 years. So what God is saying is, listen, I made this promise to Abraham. I reiterated this promise to his son. I reiterated it to his grandson. And then 430 years go by, and then he gave the law. Why did he give the law? Well, we're going to look at that next Lord's Day. He's going to talk a lot more about this in Galatians 3. And we've talked about it some already. But just know that the law served a purpose. But that purpose was to never undo the promise. The promise came first. And the promise was ratified. Now a last will and testament is ratified when the person dies. So how was God's 
covenant promise ratified with Abraham. We may remember from our study of Genesis in Genesis chapter 15 what we learned about this. In Abraham's day, it was common when two people would make a covenant with one another. Uh, they would go through a routine where they would take uh, animals and they would kill these animals. They would cut them in half and they would line a pathway with the halves of these animals they had killed. And then the two people would walk together down the middle of that path and this would seal their covenant with one another. Now, why did they do something like this? I realize this is rather unusual for us today, but it served a great purpose. And the purpose was essentially this. Those two individuals, as they walked between those animal carcasses, they were basically saying to one another, if I violate the conditions of this covenant, so may it be done to me that we just did to these animals. And that's a little bit more seriously than signing your name on a document, isn't it? That the deal was, if, if I break this covenant with you, may I be cut to pieces like we just cut these animals to pieces. That's how people made covenants in Abraham's day. But when you go to Genesis 15, you find there's a few differences there. God makes this covenant with Abraham, but it's very clear in Genesis 15, only God goes down the path. That the presence of God is what passes down that path. Abraham doesn't. Why? Because God's the one who keeps the covenant. God's making it real clear to Abraham, this is not a partnership where they're both contributing. God makes it real clear to Abraham that he's the faithful one, that the covenant's guaranteed by his faithfulness, that he's going to be in this covenant relationship with Abraham and with his people based on who he is and his faithfulness, not based on their faithfulness. But there's a problem. The problem is, is that God can't be in a covenant relationship with sinful people because of their sin. That's why the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 59, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. So how can God be in a covenant relationship with people who are sinful, sinful and as a result of their sin, they're separated from God? Well, this is how God does it. God is the one who goes through those animal parts God is the one in Genesis 15 who's saying to Abraham, if this covenant is broken, so may it be done to me. And God is the one who is a result of man's sin who ultimately is ripped apart on the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus bears the full wrath of God on the cross. Jesus is torn to pieces, not because he broke a covenant with God, but because you and I did. The scripture says all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. You may consider yourself this morning a pretty good person. The scripture says this of you. There's none good, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Your standard might be this. God's standard is perfection. And no one in this room is going to come up here and make a case this morning that you are a perfect person, are we? And so the scripture says very clearly that in order for us to be in the presence of a holy God, someone must pay the penalty of sin. And that's exactly what Jesus does on the cross. And that's why the only way we can be made right with God and in right fellowship with God is through Christ and through Christ alone and through the grace of God because we don't deserve it, friend. 
That's why many times in our study of Galatians, I have come and will come to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. Do you understand what God's grace means? I read a good illustration recently of God's grace. It was a pastor sharing a story about his years in Bible college. He was talking about how in one particular class in Bible college, he had a very strict professor. And this professor was known to be so strict and his tests were so intense that no one had ever gotten a perfect grade on his final exam. And so no matter how smart you were, no matter what kind of student you were, there, there was always a few questions on there that would trip up even the brightest student. And in fact, the test was so intense that even those who considered themselves pretty good students would often fail these final exams. And so this particular pastor recounted how he spent week after week after week trying to get ready for this final. He actually skipped his other classes just to study for this one. He got off work early. He stayed up late. He got up early. He did everything he could to prepare himself for this intense final examination until the day when he walked into the class and he saw that look of fear on everyone's face. And they all took their seats and then the professor passed out the exams and gave instructions to keep the exam face down until everybody had received their exam and then they were to turn them over and to begin their work. And this pastor recounted how as he turned his test over he quickly noticed that the answers had already been filled in. He looked around and saw that everyone's answers had been filled in. They had all been handwritten. Flipped to the next page, the same, the next page, the same, until he got to the end of the exam and he read this note written by the professor. This is the end of the exam. All of the answers on your test are perfect. You will receive an A as your final grade. The reason you passed this test is because the creator of the test took it for you. All the work you did in preparation though it may have been a great discipline for your study, did not help you get this perfect score. And then as the professor looked out and those eyes began to look up at him, that pastor went on to share, the professor said this, some lessons you learn from lectures, some lessons you learn from research, but some lessons you learn from experience. And you will probably never forget those. In class, you just experienced grace. Unmerited favor. A perfect score, regardless of how much effort you put into it. Now, as I read that story, I started thinking about myself as a college student and thinking, well, that would have been a pretty good deal. <laughs> I mean, I studied, but I didn't get up early and stay up late. I, I would have been one of those just super excited. But I tell you, I started thinking there probably would be some other people and probably were in this situation who were probably a little frustrated. Those who worked so hard, those who studied so intently, those who left to themselves would not have gotten a perfect score but would have done pretty good. Those people may have looked around that room and thought, wait a second, this isn't fair. I worked hard for my grade. What did they do? This isn't fair. Friends, one of the reasons we struggle so much with understanding the grace of God is because we fail to recognize 
God's grace is not based on fairness. And thank God it's not, because you know what's fair? Hell. What's fair is you and I deserve the eternal wrath of God. You may thank yourself better than others, and you can thank that as you burn with the rest of us. Because apart from the grace of God, no one will be in the presence of God. And no matter how hard you work, and no matter how much you prepare, you will not be a perfect person any more than the students in that story would have been perfect students. They received a perfect grade because of the grace of the one who wrote the test. And you and I can enter into eternity with a perfect God because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you think for one moment that you bring anything to that equation, then friends, you're believing in a false gospel. You don't deserve heaven. You don't deserve Jesus. But God is so gracious towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the grace of God is that He converts our failing and struggling achievements into perfect scores. And don't forget that. That your righteousness isn't because of your hands. It's because of the hands that went on that cross at Calvary. That your righteousness in mine isn't because of the sweat or the toil that we've put into life. It's because of the blood that was shed at Calvary by Jesus Christ. And friends, that's good news. Because that means that when you lay your head down tonight and you start to consider the events of the previous week or the previous month and you start to think about perhaps things that didn't go so well or how things didn't turn out like you thought they would and you start through this process of, well, maybe, maybe if I had prayed more, Maybe if I'd read my Bible more. Maybe if I'd had more faith. Well, friend, you can just shut down that thought process there and recognize that anything that is in your life is a result of the grace of God. And if there's suffering there, it's there for a purpose. And if there's blessing there, it's there for a purpose. And God doesn't give to us or take away from us because of the level of how much we were faithful that day. He, he takes that mustard seed. He takes that, that confession that He is Lord and He responds to that with the full inheritance of every promise that was made in and through Jesus Christ. And that's why Christ should not be considered our insurance policy. He is our inheritance. And because of that, the final point, point three, because of that, our salvation is secure. Paul reminds us here in Galatians 3 that we can know that in Christ our salvation is secure. Verse 18, he says, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. He says you can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, well I'm saved by faith and I'm saved by works. And if you're trusting in works at all, then you're not trusting in faith. And if you're trusting in works, then friend, you have no security at all. If you're trusting in the work of your hands for your eternal salvation, there's no security there. I met a student years ago when I was a campus minister at WKU who 
was raised in a denomination that taught a works-based salvation. He was taught from the time he was young that in order to be saved, that you have to do certain things, you have to work at it. And one of the things he was taught was that, that the only way you can ever feel any sense of security about your salvation is if you're at a point where you have confessed every sin and you've repented of every sin and, and you just get it all off your chest and out of your mind. And in that moment, you can, you can rest secure. And he told me, he said, I, I only experienced that when I would lay my head down at night because it was then that I would just think through how messed up I was and how sinful I was and I'd try to confess everything to God. And he said, Richard, for just that brief moment before I'd fall asleep, I just I felt a little bit of security. And then he said, I'd dream something wicked and I'd lose the whole thing overnight. <laughs> and I'd get up the next day and I'd, I'd sin more. He, he never felt any rest in Christ. He never felt any security because his faith rested in the work of his hands. But God offers us something better. He offers us the security of His Son. Friends, if our salvation was secured by our performance, then our salvation would not be secure. But our salvation is secure because of God's promise, not because of our performance. And that's good news for us today. It's a reminder that no matter what you have done, you are covered by the covenant righteousness of Jesus Christ if you will put your faith and your trust in Him. And that now when you're in Christ, that your standing with God doesn't fluctuate up and down on the inconsistence of our daily obedience. Well, I did pretty good today, so I feel secure. I didn't do so good today, I don't feel secure. We can rest and we can trust in the promises of God because they are fulfilled in Christ and in Christ alone. So friends, where is your faith today? Is it in Jesus? One of the first verses I was ever pointed to in the scripture, one of the first references I can ever remember, was John 3.16. It's probably a verse very familiar to most of us here. The question is, do you know what it says and what it means? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Friend, do you believe in Jesus today? I'm not asking, is He your backup plan? I'm asking, is He your only plan? It is your trust in Christ and in Christ alone. And if you find that you're trusting in anything else for the eternal state of your soul, then friend, now is the time to repent of that and to trust in Him. If you find yourself sliding into this works-based righteousness, well, if I just do this and I don't do this, then I'll be okay, or I hope I've done enough to please God, you can repent of that today and you can trust in Christ and in Christ alone. And so we're going to do that together as we sing about Christ and Christ alone. And as we sing this, I would invite you to think about the words we are singing Trust in Christ, and if you find that you're not, repent and confess. If you need somebody to pray with you, I'll be available. If you need a, a conversation about the gospel, questions about the gospel, I'd love to answer those for you today. If today's the day of salvation, 
where for the first time these, these pieces have come together for you and you realize your desperate need to, to call out and confess Christ as Lord, you, you believe in Him with all your heart, then today the Scripture says is the day of salvation. Why not make that confession before man today and come forward and do that? If God's leading you to join this church, well, whatever it might be, I'll be available, others will as well, during this time of invitation. So if you would stand together as I pray for us, and as we prepare to make this confession together, that our faith is in Christ and in Christ alone. Father God, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus. And Lord, we confess as a people that so often we, we put our faith in other things. We put our hope in other things. We put our trust in other things. So often we treat the gospel like it is something that's there in case we need it. Father, I pray today that you would do a work that only you could do through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would show each of us our desperate need for Jesus every moment of every day. I thank you, Father, that he is our foundation, that he is our shelter, that he is our very real help in times of trouble, that he is our very real security in times of blessing that he is our one and only hope. So, Father, help us to trust in him, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.